This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. Today we have with us as our guest, Ken Cragen, a Harvard Business School graduate who has succeeded in nearly every area of the entertainment business. As a manager, he guided the careers of Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, Olivia Newton-John, Burt Reynolds, the Bee Gees, and many others. He was a producer on several hundred hours of television and films, including the groundbreaking Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, the ratings-busting Kenny Rogers Gambler movies, and many comedy and music specials. He is best known for conceiving and organizing the historic We Are the World and Hands Across America, and NetAid and parts of LiveAid. For those efforts, he is the proud recipient of the United Nations Peace Medal. He loves teaching careers and speaking to corporations and nonprofits. He is also my husband. Ken, say hello to our listeners. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Ken. I'm Mary Elkins. And Ken, we've been asking our guests how they got started on their career paths. Can you tell us how your early ventures into entrepreneurship began? Well, the weird thing is I started as a box boy when I was 14 at my uncle's uh, cigar and cigarette and candy warehouse. But, uh, but very rapidly, I kind of became an, in, you know, an entre- entrepreneur. I, um, I got involved with uh, subscriptions for Time Life and Sports Illustrated. Uh, they had just come out with a magazine, Sports Illustrated, and they were selling them at a discount to students. And I started doing that in high school. Uh, I was living, my father was a uh, vice chancellor at Berkeley and a law professor there. So we were living near the campus and I would go up and distribute cards up there. And I made all kinds of money on because they gave me, a, the magazines gave me a commission on everything I sold. And I, one week as a teenager in the, in the, I was going to say the 1850s, that would be <laughs> a little earlier. No, in the 1950s, I actually earned $1,800 in a one week period. Wow. My, my mother just was blown away. How could you do that from handing out postcards that people would fill out and send in for subscriptions? But that's where I kind of started. And then in, in, early days of college, I got involved in producing concerts. And um, it was just something that happened. We were going to clubs and the, the whole folk era had started. And it, there was a group came along uh, called the Limelighters. And uh, I, I started listening to them and going to the clubs to hear them. And uh, I got involved with a group called the Kingston Trio who literally changed the music scene. They, 
these three guys with three instruments could travel all over. Prior to that, it had been big bands. And I got to uh, I produced concerts for them on the UC Berkeley campus and got a reputation as a concert promoter. And I, I mean, I didn't have a lot of experience, but uh, I did everything for it. I sold the tickets. I created the souvenir book that we put out and I actually collected tickets at the door. I mean, I even ran spotlights was whatever was necessary to take care of the show and got a reputation for that. And the Kingston trio asked me to be their personal, not their personal manager, their concert promoter. They had a personal manager, but I had been accepted to Harvard business school. And my father said, if you don't go now, you, you very simply, you won't ever go. And he was so right. It's the only thing I can remember. I remember absolutely pushing me and making me do. And, uh, but I, I went off to Harvard business school first day there, a guy comes in my room and says, you heard this. It's the number one song in the country. I'd been in Europe for the summer. I said, it's the number one song in the country. Uh, uh, hang down your head, Tom Dooley by the Kingston trio. And I thought, my career has gone. I would have, if I'd gone with this group, I would have had this big success, you know, and everything. But uh, coming out of Harvard Business School, a group called the Limeliners asked me to be, actually asked me to be their executive secretary. This is kind of the interesting, maybe the most interesting part of this whole segment of story, because when they said, we want you to be our executive secretary, I did probably what is in many ways the guttiest thing in my life because I had no experience as a manager. But I said to them, look, if you want a manager, I'll do that. I didn't go to Harvard Business School to be an executive secretary. And when I got back to the school, there was a very funny letter from the leader of the group saying, we want you. But they wanted me to go then out of school. And I said, no, I got four or five months till I graduate. So it was, that was a fascinating time period for me. Uh, tell us about the people you managed along the way. I guess what the limelighters, they were your early clients and what did those lead to? Well, I do have to tell you that the very first day I went out on the road with the limelighters was spring break. I wasn't even finished with Harvard and I walked into their hotel room and one of the guys was lying on the bed in the hotel room and he said, well, that's it. We're breaking up. And I had turned down like Procter and Gamble and Time Magazine and others. And here all of a sudden, the group that I had decided to go with was breaking up, but they didn't. And we had three fantastic years. And the day they broke up, I signed the Smothers Brothers, who I'd become friendly with in San Francisco. And I took a deal I had for the Limelighters, turned it over to the Smothers, and it that particular deal for television commercials that were going to run everywhere uh, put the Smothers on the map. They had 49 straight sellouts after that and ended up with their own television show. First, a series where Tommy played an angel. And then when that didn't succeed, even though we did 26 episodes, uh, when that didn't succeed, um, we ended up with our own TV show in the late uh, 1960s that was groundbreaking. It was the first true activism on television, on network television. We protested the war, we protested racism, we, we came out for all the things that nowadays are so relevant. And we were doing it on network television. Now we got thrown off ultimately after three years. But uh, 
but we were doing something truly unique. If I look at a seminal moment in my life and career, that Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which I wasn't certainly the only creator by any means of, or, but I was managing the group in that period of time. And my partner, Ken Fritz and I were co-producers on the show. And we had brilliant writers, a lot of people you know, you know, from Mason Williams to Rob Reiner to Steve Martin, people like that. And uh, it was it was an amazing success. It it sort of set me up for the whole rest of my career, basically, because once you have a success that big, you can trade on it, you know. And and I always learned that, you know. Yes, and you were still so young then too. Yeah, I was in my twenties, uh, and uh, we all were. It was amazing. It was one of the reasons we were so outspoken. We were anti the Vietnam War. We were right in the middle of it. And we did all kinds of things to protest it humorously. We did it, we did it with satire, uh, which is the great way to do it. I mean, you see that being done many, many times nowadays. But that was a very exciting time, very exciting. But I ended up at, at the end of the night breaking up with the Smothers Brothers, which I ended up managing them twice more. Every time they got really hot, Tommy decided he could do it on his own and they got rid of me. But uh, I had two more terrific runs with them, one in the late 80s and one in 2003, 4, 5, I think, in that period of time. And who would you say were the most important influences in your life? Well, first, my mom and dad. Clearly, my mom and dad. Uh, their generosity, their whole approach to uh, giving, their their um, support that they gave me and everybody that they dealt with. Uh, was just tremendous. And the examples they set. My father uh, was a first deputy attorney general of the state of California under a very famous man named Earl Warren, who went on to be governor and then head of the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, my dad, uh, ha when that, when Earl Warren went on, my dad became a ma uh, one of the senior partners in a big law firm in Los Angeles, Loeb and Loeb. And the UC Berkeley people came to him and said, look, uh, we'll give you $12,500 a year to come back and teach law at Berkeley. And he took it. And we moved back from Los Angeles where we were living while he was working for Loeb and Loeb. We moved back to Berkeley. I was 15. And I've always said that that demonstrated so clearly to me that you do what you're passionate about in life. You do what gives you the most pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment in life and and you'll have a great life don't let your don't let your career become your life let your career service your life and my dad was a clear example shining example for that and then the other really really big influence in my life was an artist that some of your listeners may remember certainly because of a song called cats in the cradle and some of his other big hits but that was a man named Harry Chapin, who unfortunately his life was cut short in his late 30s uh, in a car accident in, on the Long Island Expressway in 1981. But Harry was perhaps the strongest humanitarian in the entertainment business in the late 70s. And he taught me about hunger and homeless issues, certainly in America. And he inspired all the big things I did after that because he really taught me about the importance of giving back he would do he would do gosh i don't know 300 shows a year 
and 180 of them would be benefits for the causes he believed in, particularly the issues of hunger and homelessness. So he was an enormous influence, Kathy, on my life. Yes. Oh, sure. I know uh, Kenny Rogers just passed away and you'd managed him for 33 years? Yeah. What do you Very, remember most about him? His warmth, the fact that he, if he said he would do something, you could count on it. Um, the, how easy he was to deal with it, how little ego he had. Um, how, uh, what, I think maybe the single biggest thing I remember about Kenny Rogers is he, for me, he was the Michael Jordan of entertainment, you know, in the sense that when the game was on the line, Kenny wanted the ball and he knew he was going to score just like Michael. So when Kenny came to a moment where he had to raise his game in order to really truly score with what he was attempting to accomplish. He could do that. He could take it up just like Michael. And I always felt that was such a tremendous uh, advantage for him. Such a, He had that depth of talent. And it's most evident when you look at the duets, his duets with, certainly with Dolly Parton. I mean, they had one of the biggest records of all time in Islands in the Stream. But with Dottie West and, and with Kim Carnes and, and Cindy Lauper, not Cindy Lauper, Cindy was much after that, but, but uh, with all of the various duets he did over the years, he would always, that would be competition for him. He would feel he had to take his singing to another level to be on the level with these wonderful people that he was singing with. And, and then he got the chance to be an actor too. Yeah. yeah when you well, produced his films. Yeah, you know, that came right out of a of a album and a cover. A, a wonderful uh, writer named Don Schlitz wrote the song, The Gambler. And actually, um, you know, it, it, Kenny wasn't the first one to record it. Uh, but Kenny uh, got to record the song and, and it was rele his version. Johnny Cash had recorded it, but the, for whatever reason, they didn't release it. And they had the same producer, Larry Butler. And... Kenny's version when it came out was just a sensation. It, you know, it fit perfectly. And we had an album cover done because it was going to be the central song in an album. And it was done by a wonderful, wonderful photographer named Reed Miles, who was sort of the Norman Rockwell of photography. He could create this wonderful scenes with all these characters. And he created a scene with Kenny Rogers as a gambler in the 19, in the 1800s, the late 1800s at a, at a table dealing cards with all of these people around him. And it was a terrific picture. And I was at, Kenny became very successful with the songs he released on his solo career. And, um, and we, he was hosting the Amer the uh, country music awards, the CMAs in, in Nashville. And I was backstage at the rehearsal with the two executives at, at uh, CBS who were buying movies of the week and specials and things of that nature. And I had a poster, a huge poster, my God, just enormous, like a movie poster you'd see in a, in a movie theater window. And I, I said, I want to make a movie of the week. And I unrolled the poster and the two guys sitting there said, sold. Now it took months to actually negotiate the deal, but it was one of the quicker deals I've ever made. 
Yeah, I bet people can't do that now. No, no, it doesn't happen that way now, but it was perfect. He was red hot. The picture was great. And we ended up with a director who'd only done one little film. He'd come out of the American Film Institute with a terrific film that we saw that he made while he was a student. And we hired him, a fellow named Dick Lowry. I had never produced a film before. Kenny had only acted in one little part in something. We were all inexperienced, and it became the highest-rated television movie of all time at that point. Wow! It got it got a fifty-something share. It 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 was unreal how. And then it became a series of movies. Yeah, we did eighteen hours of Gamblers. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we <laughs> there's a lot of talk lately about trying to resurrect it as a series. Um, it was just great. It got it got beaten later by, as I recall, Farrah Fawcett in the Burning Bed. Wasn't that her movie? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, and that beat us about a year or two later. But at the time, these novices, all of us, made the highest-rated movie of the week that had ever been done. I was pretty proud of that. And it, I recall that I was in that. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, you played you played a lady of the night or whatever we want to call it. One of my favorite people of all your clients is Lionel Richie. I remember so many good times we had with him. Tell us some of your highlights with Lionel. Oh gosh, you know, I first got to know Lionel because Kenny Rogers had gotten number one records on every chart, and he but he hadn't been on the R&B charts. There were only like basically three charts and there were the country, there was pop, and there was uh, R&B. And uh, Kenny went to the head of the record company and said, I wanna get a hit on the R&B charts. And this fellow said to him, look, you know, the guy that ought to write that for you is Lionel Richie. So as I recall the story, Lionel has it a little opposite from me we think of it differently but as I know the story I wasn't personally there Kenny and his wife Marianne flew to Las Vegas where Lionel was performing and uh, talked to him about writing a song and he sat down at the piano and he started playing a little bit of this song lady Lionel rarely got lyrics early in the story he in the song when he was writing it, he would get the music though, and he played a little of it, just lady, lady, you know, the whole thing. And and Kenny loved it, and he said, do that for me. And they went in and recorded it, and it just, it just went, you know, through the roof. So we were doing TV specials by that time with Kenny, and we went off to Tuskegee, where Lionel was from, and the Commodores, which he was still in at that point, were... And we taped the group with Kenny doing that song and other stuff for that show. And I got to know Lionel pretty well down there. And he just, Lionel decided to leave the group. I didn't urge him. I never would take anybody away from a group. Uh, but uh, Lionel and his wife, then wife Brenda, came to me and said that they, he wanted to go solo. And I did, by the way, what I've often done and a good lesson for people. I said, look, as your manager, what I care about is that your career service your life. So go home, you and Brenda, sit down, write out the things that give you the most pleasure, the most enjoyment, the most fulfillment, the most fun, the best feeling in your life, and come back to me and we will set goals 
that maximize those, that minimize the things you least like, and will work out your career to service your life. Now, I happen to know there, are, there wasn't any other manager in the business with that concept. And I literally got talent to run to me by using that where, I, you know, it's the same thing you tell anybody, you know, people that are listening to this, find out who your customer are, who are, who are, who, who are, we, who are the people you are going to service in some way or, or take and what is important to them and what really will uh, fulfill their life better. And then you'll be successful. Wow, that's such great advice. Tell us yes. uh, uh, more about, uh, well, tell us a little about how you came to conceive and organize We Are the World. Well, again, we go back to Harry Chapin. I mean, hunger and homelessness were his big issues. And when in uh, Harry, had, when Harry passed away in 1981, Kenny Rogers, who had been, uh, you know, living in, in absolute poverty as a kid, uh, eight kids, sometimes in one room, uh, living in the projects in Houston, sometimes not even having a place to live. Kenny Rogers picked up the torch that had fallen with Harry, and he carried it. He carried it forward. He he put a million dollars up for uh, the World Hunger Awards because the media wasn't covering uh, the world hunger issues and particularly hunger and Amer- hunger in America. And we gave. Uh, awards away, usually of around ten to twenty five thousand, to media for coverage of those issues. And we did it at the United Nations, and um, and it got Kenny actively involved. And then we started collecting foodstuffs and putting them in. Uh, we'd, we'd get a, a a local car dealer to put uh, pickup trucks at the venue where Kenny was playing, and we'd ask people to come and put canned goods in the back of the pickup trucks and then we drive the pickup trucks over to the local food food banks and that would get publicity for the car people for the car dealers it would leave a good feeling it would do good people would love it uh we we even put gave people flyers when they picked up their tickets in those days many times you had to pick up your tickets if you were going to go before the show and it would ask them to bring stuff. We, we did all of that kind of thing uh, with hunger. And then, so I was kind of be, getting known for working in that field and known for working with Harry and, and uh, with Harry Chapin. And pictures came out on television, first in England on the BBC, shot by a, a famous cinematographer named Muhammad Amin who was worked for Reuters in, out of Kenya. And he went to the camps where people and kids were starving in Africa and filmed that. And that footage went off to England. Now that was footage that usually was shown at night after midnight. It was like the Christian children's network footage and stuff like that. Usually the editors didn't think and, and, and producers didn't think that people would watch that. Certainly not in primetime news. But uh, a, a news guy at the BBC put it on the air in England. And Bob Geldof saw it, got outraged, pulled together a group of singers, and, cre- and created a song called Do They Know It's Christmas. And this was Christmas 1994. And he, uh, 1984, I'm sorry, Christmas 1984. And he brought together this group, they sang the song, group of stars 
Uh, and it's, it, it broke big. It broke very big. It ultimately did about $10 million, just that song. But it was simply a single. That same footage came to America and was put on the air by Tom Brokaw. He insisted that NBC put it on the news, and they did. And then the other news channels picked it up. And all of a sudden, it was everywhere. And Harry Belafonte saw that. And he decided that since this group of stars in England, not many of whom were, were black or African-American, well, they wouldn't have been African-American in England, but African origin or, or background, he, he decided that we should do something with the African-American stars over here in America. And he thought it ought to be a concert. And he went to a fellow named Ron Delsner, a promoter who I knew very well because he promoted a lot of my clients' shows. And Ron said, you got to call Ken Craig. And he manages Lionel Richie. And, and at that point, I had just had 48% of the top 10 records on the Billboard charts were my, my records. And he said, uh, you got to call Ken Craig. He called me out of the blue two days before Christmas and said, we've got to do this. This was Harry, 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 Belafonte. Harry Belafonte. Yes, Harry Belafonte. And he called, at, I can remember, I, he got me at noon and we were on the phone almost two hours. And I convinced him because I had been trying to do a concert for a year for hunger and homelessness in America. And I hadn't gotten the artists together. And I said, why don't we do, Bob Geldof has shown us the way. Let's just do what Geldof has shown us, but we'll do it bigger and stronger. We've got more artists here and we don't need to limit it to the African-American artists. Let's limit it to the artists who are dominating the charts, several of whom I had as, ma as clients at that point. So I didn't have to go through other managers or agents or anybody. I literally got in the car and on my way to Lionel's house to ask him to write the song, I called Kenny Rogers and he was on board. You know, within 24 hours, I had Lionel writing the song uh, with Steve, what we thought would be Stevie Wonder, but I got a hold of Quincy Jones, who I knew well, and he got Michael Jackson, and all of a sudden, Michael said he didn't want to just perform on the song. He wanted to, he wanted to help write it, so suddenly, Belafonte calls me back. That, that, you know, this was the day before Christmas. Belafonte calls me two days after Christmas. He says, well, you've been thinking about what we talked about. What do you think we ought to do? <laughs> that was one of the great moments <laughs> of my life. <laughs> I said, well, I've got a song being written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And of course, I thought Stevie at that point. Stevie ended up disappearing. So he didn't work this on the writing of the song. But anyway, he said, uh, I said, I've got uh, my client, Kim Carnes, who was huge at the point, and Kenny Rogers and Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac, other clients of mine. And, uh, I, and this was like two days after Christmas. Now, you couldn't get anything done between Christmas and New Year's, but on the, on the 2nd of January, the first day you could work, I set a goal every day to set two artists working my way down the billboard charts. And I wouldn't go to bed at night unless I'd gotten two artists on those top 20 or so artists on the charts. And I just did that every day until the 15th of January when Bruce Springsteen said yes. And after that, the floodgates opened. Yeah. Yes. And you mm -hmm. were shooting for a date to record it. That was yeah. Special. Well, that was, that was one of the best decisions I made because on my way 
when after when I went to Lionel's house, I was picking him up to take him to meet Dick Clark because Lionel was, was going to host the American Music Awards on January 28th. And we were going to have a meeting prior to Christmas. This was two days before Christmas uh, to talk about that particular hosting job. And on the way over there, it flashed on me. We need to do this the night of the American Music Awards because the artists will all be in town. We're not going to have to urge everybody to fly out here. We're not going to have the expense of flying them out. They'll be here. They can just come over. We'll find a place to record it. It turned out it was A&M Studios. But we'll be able, we'll be able to tie into the American Music Awards. And that's what we did. And, of course, then there are some great stories about recording, which we can get into. Yeah. The year after We Are the World came Hands Across America. And some of our listeners may not know what that is. Can you explain to everyone how that came to be and what happened with it? Well, you know, after we recorded We Are the World, which raised that first year $64 million, we had, uh, um, actually, as you'll recall, Kathy, you and I went to New York to watch, uh, to pick up the first $5 million check, do a press conference on that, and to watch the New York Ballet do a ballet dedicated to We Are the World. And at the intermission of that ballet, the publicist for We Are the World, who was working pro bono for us, I think a guy, I think his name was Jeff Nightingale, he came up to us at intermission, he'd been sitting with us, and he said, don't laugh. Now, he was thinking about promoting We Are the World. He said, what if we put millions of people holding hands from New York to L.A. at a single moment in time in a continuous line, and they're all singing We Are the World? He was thinking of it as a great promotion for We Are the World. I, I'm very proud of my response. I said, you know, I'm not laughing. That is just impossible enough to be possible. And, and which has become kind of my mantra over the years now that it's easier to accomplish the impossible than the ordinary because nobody pays attention to the ordinary. But it, with the impossible, at least you have everybody's attention. And, but I tucked it away because I was heading to Africa in June with the first supplies. We had a whole big trip there and we were worried that we had to get vaccinated 18 different ways, and worried about what it was gonna be like when we got into those camps where people were dying and, and everything. And uh, so I was focused on that. But when I got back from Africa, from this amazing trip that, that opened a lot of doors for us and understanding how to help, uh, I got off the plane and I was picked up by a volunteer. And we were walking through the LA airport. And he said, Mr. Cragen, it's wonderful what you're doing for Africa. But you know, there are all, you know, thousands and thousands of people that are hungry and homeless here in America. What are you going to do for America? And the idea of Hands Across America popped out of my head. I went, oh, my God, that's the idea. And I went right away to AT&T because their theme was reach out and touch. What could be a better theme for the, you know, for Hands Across America than reach out and touch? They took about two months to decide, but during it, towards the end of that period, the government made them divest from certain companies and they had to fire 5,000 employees. And I'd asked them for $5 million and they felt that they couldn't spend that kind of money just having fired 
5,000 employees and divested themselves from these companies. So they dropped it. And that was July. So now I kind of, I was so busy with that and trying to get back to management and clients. I dropped it at the time and nothing happened until September. And in September, I get a call from the marketing director from Coca-Cola and he, they had been very interested in signing Lionel Richie. They had lost Michael Jackson to Pepsi. And I, we ended up signing Lionel Richie to Pepsi. And this fellow, Sergio Zeman, he says to me, he says, Ken, you got to tell us, why did we lose Michael and Lionel to Pepsi? And this was the great setup of all time for a decision because <laughs> I said, Sergio, because you can't make a decision. At Pepsi, we go into Roger Enrico, the president's office, and he makes a yes or no decision. And in 10 minutes, you're in and you're out and you know where you stand and you have a deal or you don't. And in the case of Lionel and in the case of Michael, he made a deal immediately. In the meantime, you're sitting down there in Georgia, in Atlanta, and you're bringing 40 people into the room and they're all arguing over what a good, whether it's a good idea or not and why they should do it. And let's put it in committee. And a couple of months go by, I just had that experience with them with another client. And I said, you don't make decisions. We said, well, have you got anything now? What's going on? And I just pulled Hands Across America out of my head and went, well, here. He said, when? I said, next May. He said, oh, my God, that's our 100th anniversary. He said, how much? I said, three to five million, Sergio. He said, great, we'll take it. We'll take it. Right away. I mean, I had him in a corner, right? What a great. Yeah. And so now two days later, he calls me back. He says, where do I send the $3 million check? I said, Sergio, it's five. He said, you said three. I said, no, I said three to five and it's five. And two days later, I had a $5 million check from Coca-Cola. That was pretty good negotiating. <laughs> a great story. Talk about being set up, right? <laughs> and can you, Tell us a little bit about the organization USA for Africa, which existed because of the song We Are the World and because of Hands Across America. It's the foundation. Yeah, we put that together. I, I had a, a, a good friend, Marty Rogel, who really understood this kind of project and stuff. And Marty, I asked Marty to put together an organization that would be credible that people would be willing to donate money to and, and have the money from the We Are the World recording go to. And he put together USA for Africa uh, quickly, very quickly before we even recorded so we could reach out and, and raise money. And that organization has raised over $100 million itself, but the whole operation has really literally created billions of dollars for these issues. But in, in that organization, one of the things I'm proudest of, that was 36 years ago, 35 years ago, as of January, 20, this past January 28th. And, and we last year alone, in, to, in 2019, we raised $439,000 from downloads of We Are the World, a song that came out 35 years before. And this year we're doing even better. We get last year we gave over three hundred thousand dollars in grants away, and and money to organizations in Africa and the U.S. that are doing the best work and improving people's lives and saving lives. This year we're going to give even more, 
And I am so proud of how that is, how that has continued over all these years. And we have a, a board of just six people and, uh, and an executive director who actually is now on our board. And, and we do this great work in a simple, simple way. It's been easy to do it really on, on Zoom and online now uh, because we meet a couple of times a year to, to make these grants. I'm very, very proud. And we had, in those early days, we had an, you were allowed in California to have a 48% overhead. We had a 7% overhead. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. Because no other charities were doing that at the time. And I will say, I have, I have done all of these different things, even NetAid and parts of LiveAid and all of them. And I have never in all those years taken a penny from those. And, uh, and nor have any of our board people or anything. We Are the World was actually done at no cost. Everyone donated everything. We estimated later that over $2 million was donated in time, energy, and materials, and, and the recording sessions in the studio, which A&M's at the time gave us. Uh, it's now Henson Studios. Um, we, we, it was just amazing. A year later, or a year and a half later, with Hands Across America, you couldn't do that. We had to, we, Hands Across America ended up costing $17 million. We had 400 paid employees. We had offices all over. Every, every city we went through, we had an office in. It, it well, the hard. logistics were so overwhelming. 40,000 volunteer mentor, I mean, uh, monitors who were out there monitoring the line and organizing it. You know, imagine a, a continuous, that's what anybody who wasn't around then or didn't see it or participate in it can't really grasp it. You can go online though, go on YouTube, look up Hands Across America. You'll see how amazing it was. Yeah, or when you're flying over the U.S. sometime, just look out the window and imagine, how are you going to put, you know, thousands and thousands of people, literally millions across this vast expanse? We went through 17 states. We went through deserts. We went across bridges. We went across rivers with people in, on kayaks or in wetsuits. Uh, it was a how many people do you think it was that participated altogether? The estimate is five and a half million in the line itself and another million around the world. Places that we didn't go through, like, you know, behind the San Francisco Bay Area, the bridge there. Somebody organized a line across the bridge because we didn't go up to Northern California. We came down through Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and into California. And we didn't, we didn't go up to the Bay Area. So somebody put a line across the Bay Area bridge at the same moment we were doing it nationally. It, that happened all over. It even happened uh, overseas. People put uh, lines across army bases and stuff like that. I actually and I was in uh, Hawaii at the time in Maui, and I remember lining up with a group of people at the hotel and we all held hands. Yep. Yeah, See? and I actually talked to people who were driving on a highway where the line didn't go. But when it came time and it came on the radio that it was happening, everyone pulled over and made their own line on the highway, holding hands. Yeah, our estimate of, of a million extra may be low. You know, nobody would ever really know. We never, we just made estimates, so. This country needs to do that again. Well, um, we might. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Well, on another note, um, you've shared such great uh, 
thoughts about what you've learned from managing careers and producing these very historic humanitarian events. Do you have any more main takeaways about it? Yeah, I, it, you know, one of the nice things that I've done in the latter stages of my life is to teach, for, to speak at a lot of corporations and for nonprofits and to teach primarily at UCLA. I did 11 years at UCLA. I'm not teaching there right now, but uh, I taught careers there both uh, in extension and then in the music department in the Herb Alpert School of Music. And when I first started, which was like 1988, when I decided that I would do it, they'd been after me for a number of years to try and get me to teach. I went back and reviewed my whole career and I tried to figure out, I I have kind of a scientific bent. Uh, My daughter sometimes thinks I'm a nerd because I still read popular science and other and astronomy magazines and stuff like that. And I, uh, I went back and researched back to my career, what had succeeded and what had failed. And, and when I succeeded and when my clients succeeded, I realized there was something that I called the magic of threes. Uh, You can find that pretty heavily online. Now it's even being used in a general motors ad And uh, the astronomers have found there's a law of three in the universe. But I use it as a marketing and attention-getting tool because I found going way back all the way to those early days with the Smothers Brothers that when there were multiple impressions in a concentrated period of time, and it took at least three of them coming from different directions at the same period of time, a very concentrated period, a day, a week, a month is even almost too long. But when you could uh, reach people in different directions at the same basic time with the same message, maybe slightly different in each case, but the same call to action, that you could get them to take action if you could reach them at least three times. And I found that when we didn't, there's a great example of it. It's Lionel Richie at the 84 Olympics. And it was one of the examples that proved the theory to me. Lionel appeared at the Olympics singing the number one song in the country all night long uh, with a thousand dancers and pyrotechnics and everything. And there were a couple of billion people watching that worldwide and it didn't advance his career. Why? Because there was nothing else around it. It was as big an event as you could get in terms of exposure. And yet there was no, I, I was managing Lionel at the time, one of my students said to me, why didn't you apply this? I said, I hadn't taught it yet. Didn't know the principle. Um, And so he did this in isolation, no record album, no uh, additional media, uh, everything, just this great one moment event. Now, six months later, he hosts the American Music Awards. He and Michael have written, We Are the World. We record it that night. Oh, he wins six American Music Awards himself that night and performs on the show. We record We Are the World that night. The The next day, we do a press conference for the whole thing. We get all kinds of press on the We Are the World recording. And on and Lionel's on the cover of TV Guide that week because of hosting the uh, American Music Awards. And, uh, and that's, at the time, the highest rated magazine in America, maybe perhaps in the world, highest circulated. Um, so all of a sudden, and oh, and then a month later, he, he performs on the Grammys and wins, I think, three Grammys. So all in this concentrated period of time, now, if you added up all the people who saw Lionel 
in January of that particular year, uh, that next year, it wouldn't come near the 2 billion people that saw Lionel on the Olympics. But what did people see? They saw multiple impressions in literally a week, everywhere. Lionel was everywhere. His career, which was already hot, exploded. So it, it, that's the best thing. I, sometimes it's the failure when you, ha when you didn't do it that demonstrates you the viability of when you did. And I think that's one of the greatest examples. So I, that's, that is probably the singular, singular biggest lesson I learned. The other thing that, Mary, that I teach that people seem to really gravitate to, I teach a lot of principles, but uh, they're all kind of coordinated. But I teach that, I teach something called how to get caught telling the truth. And basically it's the power of honesty. When, when I came to Los Angeles after living in the Northern California for those years with a partner that I had at the time, a fellow named Tom Carroll, um, we said to each other, we're going to go to LA and we're going to try and create the most respect in our industry for us that we possibly can. And that's the way we'll be successful. And you create respect by creating trust and you create trust by people knowing that even when it's not in your own best interest, telling the truth is something that will truly, truly build your career. And, and because they will trust you. And, and, I, and there's, I've used a, an example often of it, a very simple one, but there are many. Um, Kenny Rogers, and this is a true story, calls me up after that, we did that first gambler, but it hasn't been on the air yet. And he says to me, will you please call uh, Bud Grant at CBS and find out from him uh, exactly when we're airing it and what they're doing to promote it. Now I'd been working with closely with the network on promoting it, but I, uh, I was very busy. I said, Kenny, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. It was the afternoon, like a Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, he calls me back. So he said, what did Bud say? What's, what's the answers to that? I hadn't make the call. Now, how simple would it be at that moment in time to say, you know, I called Bud, I left word he hadn't, didn't pick up and he hasn't returned the call. Well, what if Kenny went out on the street? It just happened, it's a remote chance, but happened to run into Bud Grant, the head of CBS at the time. And he said, why didn't you call my manager back? And Bud said, I didn't get a call from your manager. What have I done? I've just eroded the trust. But on the other hand, I confess to Kenny. I say right away when he calls me that, that Tuesday morning, I completely forgot, Kenny, you know, I've got to write things down. If I don't write them down, Kathy knows this as well as anybody. She's always telling me, did you write, did you do that? And I'll go, <laughs> oh, I forgot. She said, you've got to write it down. I said, Kenny, next time you want me to do something, ask me, did you write it down? And that's the best way to be sure I get it done. And what have I done? I've built trust in him. I, I've confessed something that I could have easily hidden. I could have simply said I left word and uh, then I call Bud right away and then either talk to him or he calls me back. But and I We didn't. all know people that do that all the time. They just oh, God. tell little white lies all day long. So I'm sure the students you've taught that to have gone on to do great things. <laughs> well, they always mention those two things, the magic of threes 
and and uh, honesty as a and honesty is the cheapest tool you can use. It's the easiest and cheapest. You don't have to remember who you told what. And so you get it clear the next time they ask you. I mean, it's so easy to get caught lying. And, uh, and, and we've had great evidence of it in these days. And, uh, you know, that, and, you know, the other thing that I teach, uh, the other thing that I teach is, is that, um, you know, if you want to get people's attention, you've got to do three things. It's it's a way it's a piece of the magic of threes in a way, it's got, it's got to do something that's unique or special. It's got to have real substance to it. Something if people get the, if you get their attention, they're willing to take some action on it. And finally, it's got to be unexpected. Now, in my course at UCLA and other where where I do speeches, a marching band in the UCLA case is the UCLA marching band in full dress comes blasting into the room, th through the room, playing like crazy in full dress and out the door. And then after they're gone, I say to the, to the students in this case at UCLA or anywhere I'm lecturing, I say, so now I have your attention, but where is the marching band in everything of importance that you do? How are you gonna get people's attention? Where is your wow factor? You know, and, and that is another very critical. And then I show them basically with things like the magic of threes, how they can get people's attention. Great. So, and I can don't, you, yeah, can go you, ahead. Can you briefly touch on what your upcoming projects are? Well, we are talking very seriously about trying to remake The Gambler as a series because it was a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, and we have made some serious deals for all, the old Kenny Rogers product, of which there's quite a bit. We did so many great things together. And then, um, and then uh, I'm, I'm working very hard on a concept, which I think is the most important project of my life now. It's to save the planet. It's called uh, Hands Around the World. We hope to launch it next summer. And basically it will allow people on their cell phone to photograph themselves in a holographic image with celebrities of their choice from a long list of celebrities will film, uh, stand with them holding hands, send that to us and we will connect it to what we would hope and estimate will be more than a billion people worldwide, all standing up for the issue of climate change, all the very, whatever their issues are, whether it's plastic in the oceans or the fires in the Amazon or the melting of the glaciers, whatever the issues are, that people will be able to get involved, be part of it. We will educate them on the priority because we'll have their contact now once they send this to us or once they download it. And uh, we will be able to reach out to them, educate them about what's, uh, what's a real priority, what they can do in their own community to help with the issues, call them to action there, call them to action in their own nation, call them to move their governments and their corporations, and on a worldwide basis, demonstrate the importance of solving the climate change issues to literally save everything on the planet. That sounds so fantastic. Extraordinary. We wait. <laughs> and we wanna thank our guest today, Ken Cragen, for joining us on Late Boomers. This has been so informative and interesting. 
Ken, I've learned so much from you that I didn't know about. So thank you very much. Well, time has flown by. I just looked at the time and it's just amazing that we've been on this long, but uh, uh, I hope I didn't run run along too much, but it's a real pleasure to do it with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.